Our scripture reading comes from Matthew 2, 1 through 12. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I may go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way. And the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. This is the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. So yesterday morning, while many of you were already up and opening up gifts, uh, especially if you have young kids at home, you were probably already up at that point. But around 7, 7.30 in the morning yesterday, uh, NASA sent off a rocket from French Guiana. This rocket uh, was carrying the James Webb Telescope. James Webb Telescope, they have spent years and years developing. They have spent over $10 billion to build this thing. Sent this thing into space. And it's in some ways supposed to be a replacement for the Hubble Telescope. Uh, But this one is supposed to be about 100 times more sensitive than the Hubble telescope. They believe that it is going to be able to pick up light that has traveled over 13 billion miles, light years, not miles, over 13 billion light years. Uh, It'll be sensitive enough to pick that up. Now think about that. We say that so easily. But light travels 186,000 miles per second. 5.88 trillion miles in one year. 5.88 trillion, now trillion, a number with 12 zeros after it. In one year, that's the distance that light travels. This thing's going to pick up light that has traveled over 13 billion of those light years uh, to reach it. Just think about how immense, vast the universe is. Try and wrap your brain around that, the size of the universe. I mean, they're just numbers that my mind can't go to that are just incomprehensible. 
And then we so easily read these words again and again. In the beginning was the Word. In the beginning was Jesus Christ, our Lord. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. On Christmas, we are celebrating and remembering uh, this remarkable event that Mary gave birth to and laid in the manger, that one who has eternally existed, our creator. Try and wrap your brain around that for a second. Try and think about the one who created this unbelievably immense and vast universe. Is that baby that was laid in that little manger. Think about it for a second. It's just... It, it is incomprehensible, isn't it? It does truly just boggle your mind. That's the story of Christmas. Matthew's gospel, unlike Luke's gospel, doesn't give us a whole lot of details about the birth of Jesus. It doesn't give us, like Luke, the details that kind of lead up to it and the, the events of that night. Really, he, though like Luke, really just wants to point to the fact that though Jesus truly is the Messiah, the anointed one who was sent from God to save his people from their sins, he wants to point out that he is the Christ. He gives attention to that. And like Luke, he lays out his credentials. Matthew, we're told, is probably doing this a little more to a Jewish audience, but he lays out the credentials that this truly is the Christ. He, he shows us his lineage, that he has the right credentials, that he fulfills the, the covenant to Abraham and to David, and we follow his lineage from Abraham through David to Jesus. But we also see these events that he begins to lay out, that there were supernatural things happening around him, the, the, uh, the activities of the angels, the star that, that marked where he was. And and Matthew begins, as he will do throughout his gospel, to lay out how Jesus fulfills the words of the prophets that were proclaimed hundreds of years before, that he fulfills all of those prophecies. He is the Christ, he wants us to know. But then Matthew adds this story that Luke doesn't tell us. He tells us this story about the Magi. And and in this story, he gives quite a bit of detail. He hadn't given a lot of detail about some other things, but he gives us quite a bit of detail about this coming of the Magi and draws our attention to it. And this morning, I really just want to point out what I think are a couple of important things from this story. One is I think Matthew is holding up two kings, two kings that were named by others king of the Jews. He holds them up kind of to contrast against one another. Here are those two kings. And to this Jewish audience, he is saying, here are the two kings that have been called king of the Jews. Who is your king? And then he shows us two responses to that question. He shows us the response of the Magi, and he shows us the response of the religious leaders in Jerusalem at that time. Two very different responses. I think he writes this for his Jewish audience, but he also is writing this for us. Who is your king? How will you respond? Who do you want to be your king? So first, the two kings. Uh, there's Herod that's held up as king. Now, Herod, I'm told, was racially Arab. He was from the kingdom of Edom, 
religiously Jewish, culturally Greek, and politically Roman. Uh, This was a guy who kind of knew how to play all the angles. Uh, He understood that, and he was a politically pretty savvy guy. He was a client king, which meant that Rome allowed him to rule as king over Judea. They, they Really, his power came from them, and they allowed him to rule Judea. Pretty much gave him freedom to do that as long as he didn't cause them any trouble. But he was in many ways a cunning and cruel and merciless ruler when it served his purposes. Uh, when he wanted to get his way, he knew how to get his way, and he would use any level of cruelty to accomplish that. But again, he was also kind of a savvy politician. He knew how to play the political game. He knew how to achieve alliances where he needed to achieve alliances. He knew how to win loyalty from some of his subjects by sometimes bribing them, by giving them what they want, sometimes by threatening them. Uh, He would imprison and execute anybody who threatened his power. A couple of his sons he killed. One of his wives he killed. He would kill if he had to, to hold on to power. Holding on to power was incredibly important to him. Uh, The Romans actually called him king of the Jews, and he loved that title, and he wanted to hold on to it. We're also told uh, by Josephus, that first century historian, uh, that when he was approaching his death, and by that time his popularity, maybe it wasn't ever that high, but his popularity had really waned. In many ways, uh, he was afraid that when he died, no one was going to mourn his death. And so what Herod did was had prominent leaders from all over Judea brought to Jericho where he was as he was dying. He had him brought to Jericho and imprisoned, and then he told his sister on the day he dies, he wanted all of them executed. And the reason was because he thought that way everybody would mourn in Judea because they'd be mourning the loss of all these well-loved prominent leaders, and then it would look like they were all mourning for him that in his death, the whole nation of Judea was mourning his death. Even though it wasn't real, he was willing to settle for that. He was a master manipulator. He would do whatever it took to either have power or to look like he had power. That was important to him. But really, his power was a borrowed power. It was on loan from Rome. And the prestige and the glory that he knew, it was a very temporary and a very manipulated prestige and glory, do anything he could to get it. But he always knew it was fleeting. I think it's why he grasped onto it with such desperation, because he knew any moment it could be taken away from him. And then we have Jesus, the king of the Jews. Jesus, the one who had real power, the eternal creator, real power. And yet the one who chose this humble beginning born in an ordinary family, in an ordinary town, who did ordinary tasks every day and ordinary jobs, who looks so ordinary, so simple, in some ways even below ordinary, desperately working to just provide for the needs of their family every single day. Yet if you look a little more closely, right? If you look a little more closely beyond the ordinary, there is also signs that this isn't just an ordinary child. The angels proclaim his arrival and they celebrate it. There is a star that marks his location that leads people from hundreds of miles away to him. If you look a little more closely and you really pay attention, 
It's not just a story of the ordinary. There's more there. The prophets, hundreds and hundreds of years before, have predicted his arrival and he fulfills those prophecies. But throughout his life, he was willing to sacrifice the power and the honor and the privilege that was due him as king of the Jews. Unlike Herod, instead of holding on to it and grasping it, he was willing to set it aside for the sake of others. And at his death, what you see is he was worried about the care of his mother. He was willing to care about the concerns of a thief hanging on a cross beside him. At his death, he asked the father to forgive those who were right before him at that moment mocking him and happy for his torture. He was willing to give his life on this, on this instrument that was meant for torture and was really more than just torture, meant to bring shame to its victims. He was willing to take on our shame, hang in that place of shame, to take upon our sins out of love for us. This is a very different king, isn't it? When you hold up Herod to Jesus, man, what difference. I was thinking uh, Christmas Eve service when we turn down the lights in here when we sing Silent Night. You know, I love the decorations up here, but don't you love them even more when the lights come down and the lights stand out? I think that's some ways what Matthew is doing. He's saying, here's Herod. Here's the darkness, king of the Jews. Here's Jesus. Man, when you, when you stand him up next to Herod... It screams. Which king do you really want? Who is truly the king of kings worthy of that position? And then he lays out for us two different responses when it comes to what king will you follow. You have the Magi. He doesn't give us a lot of details about the Magi. Again, we've all probably heard it before. You know, we don't know there were three of them. There were three gifts given, so people kind of assume there were three given. Actually, uh, in the Eastern Church, they think there were 12, and they say 12. We don't know. We have no idea how many of them there were. Uh, probably more than three. It was probably this entourage that was sent from far away. We're not even told specifically where they're from, other than the fact that they're from the East. But most believe that they came from Persia, and that's because that was the location where that title Magi was most used and associated with. The Magi were Eastern astrologers, but they also had this priestly religious role in Persia. Uh, and they were people who would look to the stars and wanted to understand the stars, but they also wanted to understand and read the stars in some ways to tell what it predicted about the future. Uh, so they were in some ways fortune tellers, future tellers, but pretty well respected. Even the Romans and Greeks respected the Magi. They turned to them often to, to try and help them understand the future and to interpret dreams. Uh, they were advisors to kings very often. Uh, diviners, people who Scripture speaks against what they did, and it's not something Israel was to depend upon, but nonetheless people that were well-respected by others, by the kings of the world. And so these people who studied the stars, who looked to the stars to understand uh, what was happening, to look to future events. Many believe they were also from the area of Babylon because there was a huge Jewish community still in Babylon at the time of Jesus. And they seemed to be familiar with the Hebrew Scriptures, familiar enough to know 
probably from Numbers 24, that this star that was going to appear, the star, these people who loved to watch the stars, that someday a star was going to appear, and that star was going to be a sign of this king that was coming, this promised king, this one that in Numbers says will hold the scepter, will have the scepter of Israel. So again, these people love to watch the stars. Suddenly the star appears, this unique and miraculous star, the star that points them towards Israel. How excited they must have been, these ones who were looking for the star and love to watch the stars. And so they follow. We don't really know the degree to which they believed. We don't know how fully they had been impacted by the Hebrew scriptures, what their relationship with God was fully at that point that they left to follow. But with whatever they knew, they followed. They made a choice to take whatever they knew and to believe and to hold on to it and to seek, to seek to understand more. So they took a trek that was probably hundreds of miles, uh, probably took months to get there, it's why all those little manger scenes that have them bowing down at the manger are not correct because at the point that they got there, Jesus is in a house with Mary and Joseph. And so it's at least, at least a few months later, if not longer than that. Again, by some other details we see in Matthew, maybe up to two years. But they're willing to go and travel and to find this one. And they, they go to Herod in Israel because they want to know where he is. And the chief priests come out, and the chief priests who know even better than them the Old Testament scriptures, the chief priests tell them, well, he's going to come out of Bethlehem. That's where you should look. And so they head to Bethlehem, and they again, the star appears and leads them directly to the house that Jesus is in. And they arrive in this house, and I wonder, was this what they expected? Did they expect to see that house and that family and that little baby? I don't know, but I know what they did. What they did was when they saw him, they were so moved that they bowed down before him and it says they worshiped him. And they laid before him these gifts they had bought, the very best possible gifts they could offer, gifts of great value. Now, lots of sermons have been preached about those gifts to say that maybe they were symbolic of something because there was gold, which was commonly the gift given to a king. There was frankincense or incense that was often used in temple worship or in worship of God. And there was myrrh, which was a spice that was often used in embalming. So many sermons have been preached about that these are symbolic of he is the king of kings. He is God himself, and he is the one who is destined to die for our sins. And that may all be true. I don't know. It's all true of him. And they may have symbolized that. But what I do know is they laid down these incredibly valuable gifts at his feet and offered to this little ordinary-looking baby, child at this point, these incredibly valuable offerings to him. They gave him their very best. That's the Magi. Then we come to the chief priests and the rulers of Israel. Matthew 2, 3 tells us that when the Magi asked king, came to King Herod and asked him about the king of the Jews, that he was disturbed by this. That was the title he wanted. He was worried. Magi, again, what they had to say, often well-respected. They're looking for king of the Jews. This is a threat to Herod. I don't want anyone else to claim that title over me. And we're also told that all of Jerusalem was disturbed with him. 
Not just was he disturbed, but all of Jerusalem was disturbed with him. And that may mean everybody in Jerusalem who heard about the Magi and who they were seeking. But more likely, when it speaks of all Jerusalem, it means the religious leadership that was centered there in Jerusalem. That these chief priests and teachers of the law, these religious leaders, they too were disturbed when they heard who they were looking for. These people who knew the prophecies well, knew them well enough to direct them where to find the Messiah, these people who had traveled hundreds of miles, they didn't travel a few miles to go investigate this one that the prophets had pointed to, that the star was pointing to, that these people from hundreds of miles away were coming to find and to seek. They didn't leave and go a few miles to even investigate. Why not? What kept them from wanting to go look? And I wonder if it wasn't because Herod, as many, the, the religious leaders in Jerusalem had problems with Herod. It wasn't like he was their favorite guy. There were things they didn't like, and they sure didn't like Rome having power over them. So there were things they clearly didn't like. But there were some benefits that came with Herod. Herod, they knew him. Is the enemy with you? You know him. They understood how to manage things with him. And there were some real benefits that came their way from Herod. Herod is the one who financed this huge enlarging and rebuilding of the temple that we call the second temple. This magnificent temple in Jerusalem. Herod was the one who made that happen, that they benefited from greatly. Herod made sure that the priesthood was financed in remarkable ways, in ways they had not been for a very long time. There were real benefits that came to them. They knew how to manage things from him. Herod was a prolific builder. As cruel as he could be, he was also a guy who built these unbelievable structures all over Jerusalem. It was, again, a city being restored to a place of prestige and power in the world. And they would have benefited from that and, I think, enjoyed that. In fact, he was also credited with saving the ancient Olympic Games. He financed them so that they could go on. Uh, They were about to end because of lack of finance, and he's the guy who kept it going. So this is the guy who did some things that were respected and enjoyed. And I wonder if they weren't like all of us. We kind of know this. We know our security, how it's found here. We know how to find power and manage things here. This is a power, even though it may have problems, it's a manageable power, right? We know how to work this. We know how to make things work to our benefit through him. Or there's this baby in a manger in an ordinary family, in an ordinary place, doing ordinary jobs and tasks every day. What in the world do we do with that? I think the chief priest chose to hold on to what they knew and what they had come to trust in. At best, their reaction was one of indifference. They just really didn't give him much attention. But we know as we go on in the Gospels that really underneath the indifference was hostility. It wasn't just we're not sure about you. It's no, you're in our way. We want things to stay the way they are. We want to hold on to the power we have. We want to trust in what we know and have learned to manage well. We don't want you disrupting that, whatever it takes. Jesus will later say about these religious leaders, Though seeing, they do not see. Though hearing, they do not hear or understand. In them is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah. You will be ever hearing but never understanding. 
you will be ever seeing but never perceiving. So I think Matthew is laying out this choice in this case before his Jewish audience that he's writing to, but again through the Holy Spirit speaking to us also. What is our choice? What, what will we choose? Will we choose that which we know, which we understand, which feels like it's kind of in our hands? Will we choose to trust in that which is manageable and predictable, seems understandable? Or will we trust in a God to be our authority and our king, our Lord, who definitely is not manageable, many times is not predictable, is absolutely mysterious and beyond us, which will you trust in? Which will you look to to fulfill your longings? Which will you look to for security? That which you can manage or that which you absolutely have to depend upon and wait upon? I got to tell you, I like manageable. I like predictable. I like knowable. And many times it's where I turn. It is, it is a choice that's laid out throughout Scripture. It's a challenge that's presented to us all throughout the Scriptures. Adam and Eve, uh, they are given everything they need. We're told they're given beauty. They're given the food they need. They're given wisdom. Everything they possibly need, they had it already by depending upon God, coming from his hands to them. But we also know the story. They, they pursued that fruit because they wanted those exact same things they already had. But they wanted them in their hands. They wanted them to be on demand. When I want them, how I want them. They want them to be controllable. And it feels more manageable when it's in our hands, doesn't it? Which is crazy. How many things are in your hands that you don't manage very well? that fall apart all the time, that fail constantly. But there's something in us believes that if it's in my hands, it's more trustworthy. And because of that, they grab the forbidden fruit. In Genesis 4, Cain is told to be a restless wanderer because of his sin, that he'll have to depend upon God's protection. And what's the next thing Cain does? He builds a city. Puts the protection back in his own hands and his provision back in his own hands. Israel again and again is miraculously rescued and saved and provided for by God. Yet what do they do again and again throughout the Old Testament? They turn to idols. They create something that feels again like that's a God I know and manage. That's a created thing. And I'll bow down to something that's a little more like me, that I understand better, that I manage more and it's more predictable Instead of this God who I sometimes, I don't know what he's going to do. I'd rather bow to this thing I have some more control over. Jeremiah talks about it, describes it as digging our own cisterns rather than trusting in this fountain of eternal living water that comes from God. Or Isaiah 50 talks about as lighting a torch instead of letting God guide us into the darkness. Or in Isaiah 44, he talks about the intentional blindness that is required to take a piece of wood that you manage, that you, you take some of that wood and you burn it in your stoves to cook your food and to heat your home, and then that same piece of wood, you carve it into some image, and then you somehow think that has power beyond you to provide for you, to protect you, and you bow down to it and worship it. Do you see how crazy that is? 
It requires us to close our eyes and intentionally be blind to believe that thing could ever be more than us and do for us what we can't do for ourselves. Why choose that? Why work so hard to be intentionally blind? Because I want to believe somehow my needs can be met by something beyond me, but that I control, that I manage, that's ultimately in my hands. In the 20th Psalm, David talks about trusting in chariots and horses versus that choice to trust in the name of the Lord our God. I love to grab onto something that I, I manage it. I am often a person who is a fruit grabber, a city builder, a cistern digger, a torch lighter, a wood carver, chariot collector. Those are activities I spend a lot of time in trying to provide for the things I most deeply long for that are beyond me, trying to protect myself and create a world that feels safe, that I can, that I can rest in. I try to do all those things to accomplish what Scripture tells me I can only find in one place, in God, in the one who came in that little manger. That's the only hope that I have. It's my only true hope. God is with us. His kingdom has come in Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. That is our hope. But I can tell you, that's a hope that is not in my hands. It's not one I manage and control and is predictable and that on demand I can tell it when to come through in the ways I want him to come through. That's not who this king is. This is a king I must submit to and bow to and trust in. But he's a king whose power is eternal and unlimited. He is a king who loves us so much that he would have set aside the power and the privileges and the glory of heaven to become that child. This is a king who, who didn't seek to hold on to glory for himself, but instead he entrusted his father to give him the glory that was due him for all eternity. This is a king whose glory wasn't fleeting. It will always be there, and he always knew it would be. So I leave you with three questions. This is, this is my application, just three questions. God is with us if we really believe his kingdom has come. Then my question to you, if you look at the past of the Magi, is, you know, what are you going to let go of? If you really believe he is the king of kings, he is the Lord of lords, his kingdom has come, what are you holding on to tightly and trusting in that maybe you ought to release your grip on and let go of. And I mean that very practically. What do you trust in? I was thinking about this the other day for myself. That, you know, one of the things I often trust in, I think I'm kind of a problem solver. Now, a lot of problems I can't solve, but I, I'm a guy who likes to understand how things work, how they fit together. I don't care whether it's a car, it's a building, it's a person's life. I like to figure out how all the pieces fit together and then find a solution to what's not functioning right. I trust in that a great deal. I put a lot of confidence in that. It has failed me miserably a time and time again, but I put a lot of confidence in that. And sometimes I hold on to that so tightly that I don't even consider looking beyond it. That I face problems and I don't even think about looking to God as the one who has the answers and the power, the one who loves enough to offer me what, what I truly need. 
I don't even look. I look to that thing that I have my trust in. What would it look like to, to release my grip on that sum? To let go of that? What a value would you risk giving to honor Jesus? What would you give away? You know, I'm getting to that age where you start thinking about, do I have enough money for retirement? Uh, the answer is, for most people, is usually no. I don't. Uh, you know, I start thinking about those things. I start looking at all those things you're supposed to have prepared when you were 25. I'm like, 25? I was trying to stay alive. I don't I try and keep my kids alive. I don't remember anything beyond that, you know? Did you do all that stuff? You know? There's certain things. Well, I have to have those things. And I don't care what age you are. There's certain. I have to have those things. I have to achieve those things. I have to attain those things. Because I can't have a good life and a secure life without them. What are the things you would lay before the feet of Jesus? What are the things now, your time, your treasures, what things would you lay before the feet of Jesus and say, these are valuable things, but I entrust them to you? And how far would you be willing to go to know him better? I love the story of the Magi because they packed up and they headed out. I don't think they understood everywhere that they were going and what they were looking for. But they took what they knew and they sought more. Where are you willing to go? How far are you willing to go to know God better? Let's pray. Father, I'm I thankful that you're a God who has come to us, who seeks that which is lost. Because, Father, without you seeking us, we would never know you. Father, pray that you'd peel away our blindness, that you'd help us to see beyond our fears, beyond our expectations, that you'd help us to see beyond what sometimes just looks ordinary, and that we would see you. We'd see you in both the ordinary and the supernatural. We'd be looking for you. I pray, Father, that you would help us to truly search for you. Give us seeking hearts. And, Father, we are so thankful that you tell us that when we seek you, we will find you. Uh, because you want to be known. Father, we just thank you for your grace and your mercy in our lives. Uh, we thank you for the, the incredible gift that we celebrate this time of year. In your blessed name, amen.